Welcome back to Across the Movie Hour, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm Peachy Keen. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, Oscar drama. The biggest surprise from last week's nominations uh, was the inclusion of Andrea Riseborough in the Best Actress category for her performance in Two Leslie. And I, I can almost hear you sitting there and saying her her performance in what? what? Her what? Her what and what? And that was the response of many, which in turn led to a flurry of accusations that Riseborough cheated her way to a Best Actress nomination. Cheated how? By stuffing ballot boxes, by hacking the servers and rejiggering the results, by hiring Russian bots to influence the, the electorate. No, not by doing that, not by kidnapping a bus of kids and threatening to blow it up if she didn't get the nomination. No, she just sent some emails. She didn't even send some emails. Her friends sent some emails. Uh, this whole controversy... Again, it boils down to Andrea Riseborough uh, and her champions sending emails too aggressively. Apparently, the people who live out in L.A. have never lived through a Donald Trump fundraising cycle. Um, as one anonymous source told Matt Bellany, uh, it feels like they, we were being bullied into voting for Riseborough uh, by the wife of the director of Two Leslie. Now, um, the specific violation alleged here is that her biggest backers named other actresses in their email pleas. There's some question about, you know, who was paying for what uh, for screenings and that sort of thing. It, it's a little bit Byzantine. Um, it is the crime of the century, though, uh, you know, uh, all joking aside, this sort of thing in the past has led to sanctions against Academy members. It is a thing they take seriously because here's the, the like kind of dark truth about the Oscars. It's a multi-million dollar industry. It's, it's a, it's a like high eight figure, low nine figure industry. This whole period fuels not only the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, right? Which runs the official email server that campaigning films are supposed to use and costs, according to uh, David Poland newsletter, $20,000 to access. Um, But also, uh, frankly, it pays for a lot of the Hollywood trade press, right? For your consideration, ad campaigns can run between high six and low seven figures. You got a bunch of those movies uh, that are just pouring tons of money into that and into, uh, you know, third party people that they're hiring to help shepherd these campaigns, right? Screening at theaters aren't free uh, necessarily. Um, And you have to buy ads in newsletters. Newsletters are the big new thing, right? You got to pay to send screeners to people, not just links, but hard disks. You know, people want that disk to hold in their hand. They want to feel special. They want to put it out on their shelf and say, look, I'm so important that I got emailed the DVD or uh, mailed an actual DVD about this. I didn't just get emailed a link. In other words, every step of this process, it costs money cost money. And there are those who are very mad that Riseboro's partisans seem to have circumvented that process. And they are covering this annoyance by trying to turn this into a racial issue, right? They're suggesting that Riseboro beat out either Viola Davis for her work in The Woman King or Danielle Deadweiler for her work in Till. Uh, Academy members live in fear that this is going to spark an Oscar so white style shaming campaign. They, They shouldn't be really. Um, at least in terms of the actress categories. We can talk about other categories another time. But in terms of the actress categories, over the last 10 years, 13 of the 100 nominees for Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress been African-American, which is like exactly in line with the percentage of African-American population in the United States. Right? Compare that to four out of 100 Asian nominees, three of which came this year or three or four, something like that, of the 100 nominees being Hispanic. There are racial disparities at the Oscars, for sure, but not really uh, with regard to black actresses. It just There just isn't, at least recently. 
Now, this is all a tempest in a teapot, obviously. No one really cares about this except as a way to argue about something that they already care about, which is why I'm going to use it to argue that the email shenanigans and the resulting controversy is good, actually, since it uh, might get more people talking about a movie that nobody saw. I mean, literally, I think it did $20,000 in box office. Uh, was not a huge VOD hit. Um, nobody saw it, but now people are talking about it. They're like, I got to see this movie that was so so uh, good that Andrea Riceboro had to cheat to get a nomination for Best Actress. Uh, Alyssa, what do you make of the silliness in in particular and the nomination slate just more generally? I tried, I read maybe 10 articles about this controversy and it is possibly the dumbest thing we've ever debated on controversies and non-controversies. I, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> we did like I... 20 minutes on Bean Dad. Bean Dad. I don't know. I think Bean Dad, like, maybe that speaks to something deeper in American society, but this is just so dumb. Like, it's, I mean, I understand that you're not allowed to drive up to, like, the 1,300 members of the Academy of the Acting Branch's house with, like, large sackfuls of cash. I understand that you're, like, theoretically not supposed to, like, take them out into the desert and, like, have an ayahuasca ceremony with them where they emerge convinced that like Andrea Riesborough is like the most transcendent performance they've ever seen. But the idea that like the wife of a director of a movie can't be like, I just think she was really great. Like, let's get out there and pull for her guys. And this represents some sort of like major ethical lapse in what is sort of a transparently ridiculous and corrupt process like, I, I just, I cannot get my brain around it. And, like, maybe, you know, maybe my brain is just broken on some fundamental level. But reading all of this made me feel like I was taking crazy pills because I don't live in, like, the 30-mile zone where people get themselves worked up about this stuff. I just, again, like, it's possible that I'm dumb, but I could not get my mind around this. Like, I wrote an entire column about this in the Washington Post. I think it's a good thing when popular movies are, very popular movies are good enough to deserve being nominated for Academy Awards. And I also think it's good when the Academy Awards, you know, recognize small films or performances in small films that people would not have otherwise heard of. I mean, to my mind, this is an almost an ideal slate of nominees in the sense that the members of the Academy recognized a bunch of good popular movies in a way that might make people interested in what's becoming like an incredibly moribund cultural event, but that they also nominated some people from smaller things. Like this, this is how it's all supposed to work and you're throwing like a hissy fit over some emails? I just, th- this is an industry that is determined to destroy itself is the only thing that I take away from this. Like it's just bananas. Look, I think it was a pretty good slate of nominees for both like the acting and the best picture contenders i really like i have no particular complaints i'm also not someone who develops fervent rooting interests in this sort of thing except for the fact that nicholas cage obviously should have won best actor for pig last year and everything else is travesty but yeah i just i think this is it is so perfect that in a year when the oscars turn in like a pretty ideal slate of uh, nominations to ensure their own relevance they immediately collapse into the kind of arcana that is just simply incomprehensible to people outside of la just perfect. Well, I mean, that is that is like the real kind of crux of the matter here is that you have there there's a there's a whole kind of cottage industry that is propped up to by by this award season and all that, and they are treating this like Watergate. 
Like this is this is like the the uh, but her emails. Plumber, it's literally it's the, the, but the, her emails. The but her emails of the uh, of the Oscar season. And I, Peter, you know, I know that you're. I know that this is a thing that has kept you up late at night for weeks now. You've been you've been trying to figure out why you were getting so many emails from Andrea Riseborough promising a five times match on your nominating vote and and all the other all the other things. But it, it is. I th- I agree with Alyssa. I mean, like this is like the way it should work. You should have small things that are good and 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 recognized, and to go along with the big things that everybody loved and will show up to watch. Yeah, I I agree with Alyssa. I find this completely inscrutable. Like I I just don't understand what the allegation is because as far as I can tell, partially it's about like were the emails a little bit more it's sort of direct than than is typical of the solicitations for people to to nominate somebody, right? But it it actually seems to me to be mostly about resentment for who didn't get it, right? That it wasn't Viola Davis for The Woman King. Without any evidence that if it hadn't been Riseboro, that Davis would have gotten it. Right. It's not it's not at all obvious. There's no reason to think that that uh, that like if Riseboro had somehow or another declared herself not going to do the Oscars, I will not take a nomination even right like that, that the next person was going to be Davis. There's no reason to, to think that unless you think that these things are just divided into slots. Right. That it's like there's a well, slot for a which is that for is a the black Sato woman, Voce, is, uh, kind of discussion that's happening right now is that there is a there. You know, well, what? Why hasn't? Why was there not an African American actress nominated in this category? And like, I mean, it's not Soto Voce. It's happening very explicitly. David Poland says this quite clearly in his newsletter. But also, you know, I'll read you the uh, the Guardian's headline about this: "Is race storm erupts after Andrea Riceboro's Best Actress Oscar nomination?" That's how this is being covered in major publications, not just in like little inside the, you know, like inside the industry newsletters. Well, that's because like people like us can't understand what what on God's green earth the folks at the Academy are arguing about. So it is simplified into, again, as I say, simplified into a thing that everybody can understand, which is, again, a redux of the Oscar so white sort of campaign. But is it I mean, is it that people are really mad at Michelle Yeoh but don't want to go after her? I mean, I just – part of what is so strange to me about this, and I want to stipulate this, I have not seen The Woman King, but, like, it was a modestly reviewed, you know, semi-hit. But I don't think there anyone was walking around being like, this is the performance of Viola Davis's career. Like, I, it, it sort of came out of nowhere for me that people would feel – She was very good in it. She was good in it. Great. Okay, that's wonderful. But like, was there? I mean, you know, I didn't see. You know, I, I, it did not seem to me like there was clear consensus that she was on her way to another nomination. And I mean, I think you know, I wonder. You know, we haven't talked very much about Danielle Danielle Deadweiler until, which again was like a fairly modestly reviewed movie where a number of critics were like, "This is a very strong performance by an actress that people don't know very well." My sense is that. We don't understand what's happening because what's happening isn't something that can be understood by by reading the specific complaints. That there is a that there's a two step happening here, is that some people, the the people who are most mad, I should say, who are like who are driving the controversy, are upset because Davis uh, didn't get 
nominated and that they feel like that is a slight to her and that that is a, a kind of a disrespect uh, to uh, black actresses. And so as a result, they have found something that they find a little bit unusual or disreputable about the way that the Andrea Riceboro campaign was waged. And that that is sort of the pretext for for basically for just feeling like that, like it is not acceptable to not have a black woman in the in the slate. And you know what? I I don't agree with that, but I also don't totally I don't think that's a completely insane way to think. Like if you I mean, if if you're going to. the. I can see. See, here's here's part of the problem with this discussion is I can see you trying to figure out how to say this thing, whatever it is you want to say. I don't know, maybe something terribly offensive. But you're you're you you're worried. I think you're worried. No. And I think that's that's part of like what drives me bananas about this whole conversation. Is that like it is it is there there is a conversation as you say that is being had like blaring in the tabloids. Um, that is trying to make this uh, a very angry conversation. And it I, I frankly just think that that is, you know, it, it strikes me as silly. Let me put it this way. I don't think it's totally crazy. Uh, I don't think it's completely illegitimate to be upset about the way that Hollywood has treated black women historically, even sure. if in the last decade or two, the nominations have basically averaged out to percentage of population, as you point out there. Almost exactly. And if you start from if you start from a from a legitimate anger at that, then this slate might feel like, like I said, like a sign in some sense of disrespect or of lack of caring or of perpetuating that. And that's not, I think, that's not how I feel about this. I don't, you know, that's not like my approach to this. But I guess I don't like a trying. I'm trying to like make sense of this in a way that like, oh, this isn't just sort of something like silly and crazy and petty and like whatever a bunch of a, like a, a dispute among, a, amongst a bunch of Hollywood people who are inscrutable and you can't understand them. I'm trying to actually understand it and like make sense of it in my head. And that's the bet like that to me. That's that's an understandable motivation, even if it's not the way I think about this controversy. Yeah, I mean, I guess then why not get really angry on behalf of Danielle Deadweiler, who, you know, arguably had like the, you know, sort of the breakout relative to Davis, whose I think stature as an actress is extremely well established. Like, why not ask why there wasn't a similar campaign on behalf of Deadweiler or, you know, someone who is similarly admired but not known in the same way. You know, the the specific focus on Davis and the sort of demand for deference there strikes me as strange. I don't know. I mean, maybe people are embarrassed that they didn't do a better good job of, like, getting out the grassroots, whatever. I don't know. Uh, but uh, are, do we agree all in all? I mean, we haven't really talked about the the Oscar nomination since they came out the the day the last episode went live. Uh, so what uh, what do we what do we make just overall? I mean, I, I Alyssa, you're pro. I'm basically pro. Um, I, I thought they were all pretty good. Uh, Peter, uh, what was your what was your take on the general slate? Seems pretty fine and normal to me, uh, which is good. And it is it's like a good set of uh, of nominees in that it is a mix of things that are critically acclaimed and things that are you know quite popular but also basically liked by critics including and especially avatar and uh, top gun maverick i guess 
it is pretty striking to me the gap between the let's call them the popular nominees and the critically acclaimed nominees in terms of box office and in terms of uh, visibility. The only the only movie that bridges that gap is Everything Everywhere All at Once. It is the that is the only film this year that was a small budget sort of critical darling out of the you know made by indie filmmakers that also found a popular audience and is and got a, a best picture nomination everything else was either uh, something that the critics liked but that audiences just went and saw in droves or something that critics liked and like nobody saw and it didn't earn out and i do wonder i do wonder if uh you know the oscar nominations which used to help drive hits this used to be a thing that we would see is movies would come out in november or december and they would maybe not do huge business but sometimes they would get pickup because of their nominations if they were smaller i do wonder if that effect is still going to obtain right if, if if that is something we are going to see or if audiences have just so totally tuned out to the awards uh you know uh, the awards race that um that even nominating Avatar and Top Gun won't bring people back. And I guess I see, I, I wonder, I guess, if this sort of inscrutable controversy about Andrea Riceborough and Two Leslie, a movie which, as you said, made less than $20,000. Like, literally less than a full-time employee uh, on, you know, like working at a, a fast food job in some cities. I think, if I'm doing the math right. Like, really not a lot of money. Like, are people going to see that as, like, the big thing that people, that the Oscar world cares about? And be like, whatever, I have no idea what's going on here. I would be super curious to see if this breaks into the, the public consciousness uh, outside of, you know, semi-confused segments like this one on a general general entertainment podcast. We'll see. Uh, all right. Uh, so w what do we think? Uh, uh, just in general, are the nominees, are the, the nominations this year overall a controversy or a non-troversy? I'm going to go with Alyssa first. They're a non-troversy. They're what should have happened. Peter. Overall non-troversy. Biggest controversy since I, I can't even remember when, honestly. I don't know. I, huge, huge deal. Huge since deal. the Flash entered the Speed Force. Since the since which the, was the number one crowd pleasing moment in last year's Oscars. <laughs> most crowd pleasing moment of all time, it wasn't wasn't rigged by the Russian bot farms. Uh, real real uh, grassroots effort there. All right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode in which we discuss whether or not it's possible to make a truly anti war film. Speaking of which, uh, on to the main event. All quiet on the Western Front. It's a historical epic from Netflix and surprised some by nabbing nine Oscar nominations, including one for Best Picture. Uh, it's kind of sort of based on the novel of the same way, uh, same name by uh, Erich Maria Remark. I, I'm German. My German's bad. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front opens with what amounts to a short film. You see a scared young man named Heinrich. He's in the trenches. He watches as his friends go over the top and get shot and killed uh, before he charges into no man's land and attacks a French soldier with a spade. Just whacks him right on the shoulder with it. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, director Edward Berger then cuts to the title card before we see how he, uh, Heinrich, handles the combat. Um, though we can kind of guess from the following montage of bodies being stripped of their uniforms and boots. They're sent for repair. And sure enough, there's Heinrich's jacket. He's uh, getting sewn up uh, by a, uh, a seamstress in a factory somewhere. And 
Then we cut to a group of young men who are excitedly joining the ranks of the Kaiser's army. Uh, Paul, who is played by Felix Kammerer, uh, is too young to sign up, so he forges the signature of his parents in order to ship off to the front. After a rousing speech, he approaches a table to receive his uniform, and he gets in, and he looks, and there's a name tag, and sure enough, it's, it's Heinrich. It's poor Heinrich. Um, Paul uh, reports that he's been given somebody else's jacket by mistake, and the official lies to him. Tells him, oh, somebody else must have returned it was because it was too small. And then he tears off the name tag and he drops it on the ground amidst a pile of other name tags. So many tags, so many wasted young lives. Um, I'll couch what I'm about to say with a series of disclaimers. All Quiet on the Western Front, handsomely shot, great frosty cinematography, superbly acted. But if it had ended there, it would be a shoe-in for best short film of the year. You have the entirety of this movie, the terror of the young soldiers, the, the ugliness of World War I, the blinding lies of the higher ranks, right, in this 13-minute stretch of film. Everything after this is n- unnecessary. It's just a restatement of what we have seen, um, a, a stretching of that thematic idea uh, into an... Ex- too long. This movie's too long. Young Paul will become hardened by wars. He loses his friends as the uncaring bureaucracy chews them up and spits them out for yards of territory. No death is too meaningless or too ironic to show us. Uh, no effort too fruitless. Again, I will not d- deny the artistry of this movie. I-, I will admit to being vaguely annoyed by its insistence on on its themes. We get it. War. Bad. Um, there is one artistic choice I will quibble with, however. The the Oscar-nominated score by Volker, Volker Bertelman is just a bit much. Like, I, I texted you guys this, but it reminded me a little of the score to Annihilation. The, like, kind of blaring, distorted notes that we get in, in the beginning and recurring throughout. Bro. I mean, am I am I wrong? Am I wrong? Was it, did, did that not strike any of the rest of you as weird and not correct for this film? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm kind of at a loss with this movie because it's it's one of those pictures I recognize the artistry, I appreciate the thematic intent, I feel like it entirely succeeds at what it's trying to do, and yet I just was unmoved and annoyed by kind of the whole thing. Um, it's it's a weirdly old fashioned kind of prestige picture, right? A high minded costume drama that reinforces the film industry's understanding of a complex topic, uh, and is is nominated for a bunch of films to reward a powerful studio in this case Netflix. Peter, what am I missing here? I'm I'm being too negative. I feel like I'm being way too negative about this movie, which I didn't even really dislike. I, I thought it was pretty good, just kind of annoying. I also thought this movie was pretty good, and I agree that in a way it's on the nose. But war is kind of on the nose. It's not like it, war isn't bad in a kind of subtle and nuanced way. It bludgeons you in the face repeatedly with its badness. That's that's right. Like and then and then you die and then it bludgeons another person. Right. Like that's how war works. And I I feel like the 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 on the noseness of this movie is thematically appropriate is sub is appropriate to the subject matter. And it is it wants to say to you that like there's not a debate. There's nothing sort of poetical about it, you know, except in the sense that, like, the photography is really gorgeous. Uh, instead, it is just a parade of horror and absurdity, and there's no other way to see it. And every single moment in war just proves that over and over again. And it wants, this is the argument that it is making. And You can't make that argument if you occasionally stop to have moments where, actually, you know, this kind of all makes sense, and you can see why people are doing it, and here's a, here's a moment of humanity and heroism like in this and this is a movie about how you cannot have heroes in war about the fact that you are engaged in warfare is uh, like inherently unheroic there's it couldn't be and i think that that is in some ways a little bit distancing uh 
it right it, it creates a separation between viewer and and, and story because in, like because ultimately it's a story about people who have been thrust into something awful and you just have to put up with it they have to put up with it and the way this movie makes it makes you sort of makes it bearable is by making it beautiful and by sh- by, by making it uh, by making the images sort of poetic but the thing itself is just ugly and unrelentingly so and it wants to say that's like that is the experience of war and that is what we that that is like we're going to make you put up with it maybe even for a little too long i agree this movie is in some ways uh, like a little bit too long it's probably 10 or 15 minutes too long i don't think though that it should have just cut off uh, you know at the, at the beginning that's an interesting idea but there's an actual story to tell here about sort of the slow process of uh, of humiliation and of 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 the horror of it, of right, sort of, bear, of bearing with uh, the bearing with war and trench warfare in particular for a long time because it it wears you down, right? It's not just that it's this this moment of sort of um, explosive awfulness and then you die. Although sometimes it is that. It's often just that it's that it pulls you into it and you can't escape and you're there. You're there for a big chunk of your life, and then maybe it takes your life from you. And so I feel like in terms of what it's trying to do, the all of the things that you pointed out as you, that you were critical of are actually uh, bolstering this movie's message and its and its point. I, I agree. It's a little bit difficult to watch. It's a little bit uh, like just in terms of like just judged as a movie and a story. It's a little bit too long, uh, and I found it... It's very blunt and also... Th- like it doesn't let it doesn't give you those those moments of hope or those moments of heroism that that many war films uh, do where it says where it sort of says that some something humane and so you know wonderful can come out of this. No, it just sort of says nothing will because that's war and especially trench warfare and World War One. And I guess I, as somebody who increasingly sort of relates to my you know pacifist heritage, uh, like I'm not a pacifist in the in a strict sense, I should say, but like I I kind of as the older I get, I find myself more and more just like I find myself thinking of you know sort of just opposing war, kind of like on principle all the time for almost any reason, and just finding it horrific and ugly, and not wanting to have any part of it and not finding it in any way heroic which is not to say that there's no one who's ever been a hero in war um i i i appreciated what this movie did and the craft of it the uh the the filmmaking is just immaculate I actually even liked the score because it is dissociative uh and dissonant and it sort of reminds you that this whole thing is this sort of grinding ugly process that like it's not gonna it's never going to be soaring and beautiful it's just going to be oppressive and loud and ugly and brutal Alyssa feel good movie of the year (laughs) yeah obviously this movie makes two changes from the book both that have been sort of lingering in my mind since I've seen it the first is that it eliminates a subplot about Paul going home on leave and being unable to relate to his family. And in a way, the decision to do that undercuts what seems to me to be one of the very interesting messages of Remark's book, which is that war, to a certain extent, is addictive in an ugly way, that it transforms you and makes it 
difficult for you to relate to civilian life in a way that gives you sort of no choice to go back and keep fighting in it. And in the book, Paul's death is kind of a release from that, right? I mean, it's not that he dies doing what he loves or fighting for what he believes in, but he is freed of this process that has made him unable to exist outside of a grinding and brutal and unnatural set of circumstances. And, you know, I I saw someone, I forget who, and I apologize if you're listening to this podcast and I owe you credit, suggest that The Hurt Locker is a better adaptation of Remarque's novel in that sense, in that it does sort of, you see the protagonist go home, be unable to relate, and then return to this sort of forever war zone um, to fulfill what's fundamentally an addiction and inability to fit in. And I think you see that in you know, in a lot of conflicts. You know, the New York Times had a good piece out early this week about the use of Russian prisoners in the war in Ukraine. Um, And this private military outfit, the the Wagner Group, has been recruiting men out of Russian prisons, sending them to Ukraine kind of as cannon fodder, uh, and then letting them, when their terms are up, go home on what seemed to be sort of very legally dubious pardons. But having, you know, sort of added additional layers of trauma and social unconditioning onto people who were already, you know, had, were already outcast by virtue of being criminals who had been subject to, you know, the gulag-like Russian penal colony system. Um, And so, you know, that's a, that message that war is sort of addictive and deforming never really gets old. And I think the movie, it's odd to a certain extent that it doesn't, make that decision. And I also have been sort of troubled by the addition of the diplomatic subplot to the movie, um, because it underscores that what Paul dies for is really pointless, right? I mean, you know, he is, the final days of his life are, you know, leading up to his death in a conflict that is sort of pointlessly delayed by, you know, a back and forth approval process about whether it's okay to sign a ceasefire. And I think Daniel Bruhl is quite good in his role as a German negotiator, but the movie also kind of is exculpatory, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's about Germans trying to stop a war (laughs) that they were at least partially responsible for. And it's the, you know, clearly you have, you know, characters in the form of this general who's basically like a professional German militarist, but it does not really grapple with you know, those sort of larger attitudes in German society or, you know, the German role in starting the conflict. And so it is, you know, it adds to the broader message of futility at the expense of, I think, a sort of more searing look at Paul society's role in his death. And, you know, it makes the movie a little longer. It adds some dramatic tension. I wonder what this movie would have been like if you cut that subplot out. Look, this is a this is a very uh, kind of American centric view of the film, uh, and apologies for that. But I, I will say that I, I found the whole I found Daniel Bruhl's whole like we have to end this for the for the you know and saying to the French you know you have to give us uh you know you have to give us a good piece like otherwise a piece people, we can live with. people will be angry at you and you know maybe a uh, Hitler will arise who he doesn't actually say this but like that is the obvious 
a message here. And it just it just made me think, like, what if they made a movie about the Civil War and somebody unironically made that argument from the Southern perspective? Like, you have to give us a good piece or we're going to terrorize folks for like a century in the South. Like, I'm sorry, Germany. You got bad terms because you started a bad war. And I'm not interested in the, you know, sadness of the German soldier or German politician in that regard. I, I just it was anno- it was another thing that like annoyed me vaguely, and I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the difference between the book because I could not remember that from the which I haven't read in 25 years. So I was like I was like is that in the book? Is that a is that a you know large portion of it? I didn't think it was. No. So thank you, thank you for that. It is somewhat defensive in that in that subplot. Yeah, and again, like all of it is elegant and you know immaculately done amidst the filth and it's just a movie that in some ways i think works at cross purposes to itself yeah i don't know uh we're gonna again we're gonna talk in the bonus episode about whether or not a movie can be truly anti-war uh spoiler just for that i'm i'm going to argue that this this movie accomplishes exactly what Truffaut says movies cannot but we can we can discuss more then were you guys surprised that this movie received uh, some of the, I think, second or third most uh, nominations? Because I, it was not really on my radar at all. I, I knew it had picked up some of the precursor awards. Um, it feels like somebody at it feels like Hollywood was like, we need to nominate something from Netflix for a bunch of awards. It might as well be this. It also, I mean, the, what actually feels weirder to me is that this movie was nominated. Um, given the state of the war in Ukraine, right? I mean, it's just like the, I don't think that Oscar voters were like thinking geopolitically, but it is in, you know, it's a movie that is, I don't know. It's just, it was funny to me that this was the movie, this was a movie that happened to get in while there is this, you know, very destructive, entirely pointless on the Russian side war being fought with tremendous heroism by Ukrainians. The confluence of those two things uh, has just felt a little strange to me, but that has nothing to say about whether or not the movie is actually deserving of an Oscar. It's just a funny set of overlapping things. I feel like I started seeing buzz about this film about two weeks before Oscar nominations, just with some other um, some other awards uh, groups giving it more awards. And it does seem like the sort of thing that Oscar voters have traditionally rewarded just in the sense that it is this immaculately made uh, epic, kind of sweeping historical epic that is, you know, sort of has a powerful message that can be reduced to the length of a tweet. Possibly just a three I would Not even a tweet. What's, a, what's shorter than a tweet? I don't know, war is bad. Again, it's, you know, that's like seven characters. Ten. There's some spaces in there, but yeah. yeah. I mean, it's whatever. All right, uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on All Quiet on the Western Front? Peter? Thumbs up. Alyssa? Thumbs up, although I can't necessarily say I recommend it unless you're very specifically in the mood. <sighs> I'm very torn. I, I like I, I my my head says thumbs up. My heart says thumbs down. So I guess I'll give it a, a thumbs up because I'm a man of intellect, not passion. Wow, you um, buried the but, lead. You got Sunny Bunch has a heart. But I'm I I like I just I, it's ugh, ugh, I don't know. We'll see. 
All right, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, if you need somebody to explain to you the Andrea Riseborough drama, let me know. Complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. <laughs>